This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. Today, I want to say a special thanks to a couple of people who shared my podcast recently on social media. Thanks to Bookstagrammers at Kelly Hook Reads Books and at What Sherry Reads for sharing episodes in their stories. Word of mouth is really helping me grow the show. I also want to ask for a big favor from all of you, my fantastic listeners. Another great way to reach new people is to win an award. The Quill Podcast Awards were just recently launched and they are listener-nominated awards. The link is in the show notes and I would be so appreciative if people took three minutes and nominated this podcast in the society and culture category. There are a variety of entry categories, but you do not have to complete any of the ones that you don't want to, so it's a very quick process. Thank you so much in advance. Today, I am interviewing Tova Felcha about Lilyville. Tova is a six-time Emmy and Tony nominee and has been awarded three honorary doctorates of Humane Letters. Additionally, for her theater work, she has won four Drama Desks, four Outer Critics Circle Awards, three Drama Logs, the Obie, and the Helen Hayes and Lucille Lordle Awards for Best Actress. I personally have been a huge fan of Tova since I saw her on Broadway in Gold is Balcony. I am thrilled to pieces that I was able to interview her, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Tova. How are you today? I'm wonderful and very, very pleased to speak to you, Cindy. I am very, very pleased to speak to you, too, because I am a longtime fan ever since I saw you in Golda's Balcony on Broadway. I'm just so excited to get to speak to you today. Why don't we start out with talking a little bit about Lilyville? You want to just tell me how you came up with the idea and just tell me about the book generally? With pleasure. A wonderful agent at UTA named Albert Lee was on a subway, I believe, listening to an interview I gave on Entertainment Weekly. I mean, it was maybe it was just random. Maybe he just loves Dalton Ross and his partner, Jessica. But he was listening to an interview that I gave, and he got to his office and called my managers and said, does Tova felt you have a literary agent? My manager said no. And he showed up in the living room saying, I would like to represent you. I believe you have a writer's voice. What would you like to write about? I said, I'd like to write about my mother. Actually, I'd like to write a TV series about my mother, but I'm not sure how to write a pilot. But my mother has recently died, and she lived over till over 103, and she had a century of wisdom to dispense and caustic humor, and I would like to write about that. And he said, well, we're interested in you writing a book, so why don't we, why don't we start, start with that idea? And as an actor, you know, we audition. And I thought to myself, to get a job, you have to stop the conveyor belt on your work versus other people's work. And you basically, it's not that you're competing against others, maybe in the eyes of the casting director you are, but you're competing against the originality of yourself. How do you want to say to the person who's hiring you, I have something to contribute that you may not have noticed before in your own life, or you may not have noticed about this character. They asked for autobiography. I said, well, that doesn't sit well with me. I'm not some international star like Tom Cruise or even Merrill. 
What if I wrote about my life through my mother's eyes and my mother's life through my eyes? That would cover 110 years of American women's history. It would cover 110 years of an interaction between two strong Jewish mothers, one who felt you can't have it all, and a daughter who lived like you can have it all. And how do they get along? They don't. So I said, this is a perfect premise for me. I thought that was an original idea to see my life through my mother's eyes and my mother's life through mine and the interaction of two women who were, who were two generations apart. So we didn't have a generational gap. We had a generational chasm. And uh, I wrote the book and it was a series I felt of, of very vivid stories. And my editor, I handed it in and the editor said, wonderful stories. This isn't a book. So I almost had a heart attack. And she says, it's like watching pearls on a coffee table that are not yet strung together. Oh, I like that analogy. I actually made that quote up, but that was pretty much what she was saying. She said, do you want to do a series of of separate little vignettes as your book? I said, no, 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 let me, let me try again. Let me try again. And then the pandemic exploded. So we were in January, February. I got COVID March 9th through 19th of last year, and I was fine. I was not hospitalized. Well, I wasn't fine, but I was not hospitalized. And the minute I healed, we went out to our vacation home in Quag and lived there for nine months. And so the planet, in that sense, collaborated for me to sit hour after hour in my garden from early spring in ski jackets through the summer, through the fall, until we went back home in December, back to New York City, to write. And I got very lucky. I do a series of one-woman shows as a, as a concert and a nightclub artist. One is called Aging is Optional, because God, I hope it is, <laughs> with not dying, even though my mother had just died. You know, the minute my mother died, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. It was kind of a vivid reach for the golden, one calls it the brass ring, but the golden ring of, of a rainbow life, of a vivid life. I said, if she's gone, then my time has all of a sudden become more finite on a cellular level to me, not just intellectually, but in my guts. And I said, what can I do that might be a life-changing experience? And so my son and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and it was. Climbing Kilimanjaro was a, life, a life-changing a life experience that I hope never to experience again. <laughs> that's what I can say about that one. Okay, that's hilarious. I've always wanted to do that. Well, you, you'll do it. Older people, you may not be old enough, older people do very well because A, we follow instructions implicitly. And when the group leader says to us, do not go at 10, do not, do not exert yourself to the nth of your energy. Do not look ahead, look down at the feet in front of you. Do not be goal oriented. It's completely anti-American and the idea of the rugged individual and self-expression uh, through the material and psychological world, the use of capitalism. It's com- exact, absolutely a, if you will, more of a Tibetan Zen Buddhist practice. And so for seven days and seven nights, it's very biblical. You climbed a mountain and went through all the seasons. You started in tropical Tanzania and ended in the winter in your snowsuit on the top of, of a mountain of the seventh highest peak, I believe, in the world. And it was an extraordinary experience to have that discipline. And what happened is you were present. You became present every moment of your climb. And your 
mind, as it quieted, held certain thoughts, like a big salad bowl would hold lettuce, so that the thoughts were not the salad bowl, Cindy. The thoughts were the lettuce, and you could eat them, discard them, do what you want with them. They're only thoughts, and that really was a life changer for me because it helped me codify more clearly even what happened with my mother and me. When I turned 40, my mother said, how much longer are you going to blame me? And I said, not another minute. And we started our rapprochement, and then that exploded at the death of my father, Sydney, on May the 11th, 1996, when my mother just finally allowed a spotlight to shine on her. Uh, She began to express herself verbally more than she had in the earlier part of her life. I mean, I had this mother who did a series of good deeds, was a real mitzvah machine, and I guess showed her love through action, but not through words. And she had a verbal child. I had a child who was probably had more of my father in me, who was a litigator, a trial lawyer. Thus, my 13 years, like Wendy and Peter Pan, visiting Law and Order for 13 seasons once a year. It was a fantastic experience. Playing a litigator was basically taking my father and putting him on television. So I had a mother who did not communicate with me in a way I could appreciate. And maybe I didn't communicate with her in the way she could appreciate, but darn it, I was just a little kid. So by the time I was 18, I said, do you love me? And it was right out of Fiddler. She says, what are you talking about? Do I love you? Of course I love you. Who takes you in the Chrysler to your singing and your dancing and, and Hebrew school? Who dresses you at Saks Fifth Avenue? We only buy our undergarments at Alexander's. Who, who bakes the nut cake that you love and the, and the silver dollar pancakes and, and takes you to the dude ranch? Who, who, who does all these things for you? I'm here. I do them for you. But notice what was missing. Just the three words. I love you. And uh, that created quite a, quite a black hole of the universe for me in my existence. And I think led to my life in entertainment. I'm digressing for a minute. Let me just get back to the manuscript. In rewriting the manuscript, uh, I asked my director of my one-woman shows, Jeff Harner, to join me in, in my very small writer, writer's room with my assistant, Oliver Scholson, who's a brilliant boy from Yale, and I would just dictate and he would type with fury uh, what I was saying. And Jeff said to me when he read the first manuscript, he said, I have an idea. What, what do you know best? And I said, well, I know the theater best. That's how I was trained before I went into film and television. And he said, why don't you write this as a theater piece? And it was like I was struck by lightning in the best way. I was electrified. And once I fashioned this memoir in three acts with two intermissions, and instead of having chapters, you have scenes, and instead of having a a prelude or a, a prologue, you have an overture. Instead of having an afterward, you have exit music. Instead of having acknowledgments, you have a cast party where I celebrate all the people, including Mr. Harner and Mr. Scholson, who so contributed to helping me hone my writer's voice and making sure that every comma was in place and every period was where it should be and a colon versus a semicolon, which saved Hachette a great deal of labor in their proofreading, I can tell you. As it happens, Oliver was a linguistics major at Yale. So that was, that was his thing. And that was a very, in the final proofing of the manuscript was terrific. So between uh, the guidance of even the coaching in certain ways of, of Jeff Harner asking me questions as you would ask me today, 
the manuscript took a new form and a very cohesive form. And I was able to cull the words and make sure I didn't repeat verbs and make sure I didn't repeat certain adjectives so that the reader could be guided through different sparks in their own imagination. But I owe those boys, those two men, a, a lot for keeping me company during this process. And then I rehanded the script in to Lauren Marino at Hachette, and she was very happy. And she was just wonderfully happy. And she wanted me to cut a few pages, and I did. And then it still was over, you know, it's 303 pages, big deal. And she said, it, she said it's fine. And then she went to management. She got me 16 or 20 pages of, of colored illustrations. She was an excellent uh, support to me, as Hachette has been. And I'm thrilled that Lilyville is doing very, very well. And let me just mention the humor of the book. You know, my mother, Lily, was born on a dining room table in the Bronx in 1911, and she lived to a, to a robust 103 years young. And when I told her I wanted to be an actress, she said, why don't you just go into the kitchen, get my challah knife, stick it in my heart and twist it. <laughs> and when she came to the Broadway musical Pippin and she saw me stop the show singing upside down while simultaneously performing a full out aerial act 30 feet in the air without a mat, without a, a safety belt. And I, you know, I stopped, I stopped the show. Look, you put an old bird hanging upside down on a trapeze singing a hit song simultaneously. You will stop the show if you're doing your job. So thank you, director Diane Paulus. Anyway, I went to her after she saw the show and I said, mommy, 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 like a three-year-old grasping for mother's milk. How did I do? And she said, Talva, that you should still have to earn a living like this and on a trapeze yet. And when I took her to see Golda Meir, where I played the prime minister, which I'm so happy you saw, and that show, Golda's Balcony, became the longest running one woman show in Broadway history. Her comment was, I rate your parts by how you look. Dolly Levi was a 10, Golda Meir, zero. Welcome to Lilyville, Cindy, where my mother Lily reigned supreme. And though all my parts happened on Broadway, in Hollywood, or in concert halls, they all took place in Lilyville, for better or for exasperation. That in a thumbnail is, um, is a bird's eye view of my mother's and my interaction. Well, I loved her comment about Golda being a zero because of the way that you looked in that character. I just thought that was so funny. But what a beautiful show. And I, I didn't realize it was the longest running show till I read your book, but it was just absolutely fabulous. And you did such a fantastic job. And I followed you ever since then. Thank you. Well, it was a thrill to embody the prime minister who really had three children. She had her two biological children, and then she had her primogenitor, her firstborn child, which was the state of Israel. And um, people have asked me, there's mentions of Golda in the book, but there isn't a full out chapter about her because this book is about my mother and me. It's about the parent-child uh, relationship that I can go deepest into and in the hope that in trying to dig down to the universal river of common experience, that I will have you, Cindy, or my dear, my my wonderful science teacher, Nate Sloan, who's still alive and well in his 90s, or my friend Lois Cahotis, who is going to be 104, who have, who's read the book, that this book moves them. And it did. And it did. So that, to me, is an accomplishment, to have, to have your book, in a way, serve, if we were going to talk in terms of paintings and, and masterworks, to have it 
serve either as a still life of an apple, let's say, so that you see apple like you never saw it before because this brilliant painter, whether it's Van Gogh or Matisse or whatever, has captured apple better than any Vermeer than, than you've ever seen it. And you'll never look at an apple in your refrigerator the same way. I am hoping that there is a moment of Lilyville for every reader. And if not in the hardcover, then certainly in the audiobook where they can say, oh yeah, oh yeah, that happened to me. That was my life. And um, that, was, that was my vision so that I could serve the audience, in this case, the reader. It's what I try to do with all my characters that I portray. Same thing. I think the format is just genius. I mean, based on your career and acting, you know, most of your life, then to put this in the form of a play, I just thought, oh, that's perfect. I wondered how it came about because it just, I think it really adds to the story a lot. It came about because Jeff Harner, my dearest friend and colleague, who will once again, when COVID is over, we will direct me in my next one woman concert. We've done two. Uh, Aging is optional because God, I hope it is. That was upon the death of my mother. And Tova is Leona, doing a piece on Leona Helmsley, which was wild. And we work with a phenomenal uh, musical director named James Bossy, whom I owe everything to as well. He wrote me a rap for RBG that is just through the roof because I played the Supreme Court Justice. And I get to play her twice in Sisters-in-Law by Jonathan Shapiro on the stage. And then, of course, in my nightclub act, Aging is Optional, where I where I put forth the virtues of the Supreme Court Justice who let me meet her four times in the last year of her life. And and we made a wrap-up for her. I loved that RBG rap. That was a ton of fun in the book. RBG is really missed. She was a wonderful woman. And I do think she was a wonderful woman. You know, there are certain politicos that say she should have retired under Obama, so Obama could have appointed. But look, he couldn't get Merritt Garland, so who knows? But I'm, I'm in the Ruth camp. I think you should live fully until you can't live anymore. And if you have God's grace with you, you'll have what's called a rabbi's death, which is usually ventricular fib, where you just die in your sleep and you fall off that cliff. Uh, My mother, Lily, died brilliantly of a cerebral hemorrhage. She went to sleep. I think she was in pain maybe for a very few seconds and then went to sleep for almost for over two weeks. So we were able to have a shiv awake. We were all at that deathbed for two weeks watching the World Cup trying to get her to July 4th, which we couldn't do. But uh, my mother had the grace to hold on after she had that fatal hemorrhage uh, so that the whole family, including the British family, could fly in and complete their relationships with her. That's one thing, Cindy. I got the opportunity through my mother's wisdom and, and mine, if you don't mind me saying, to complete my relationship with my mother There wasn't a day after my father died in 1996 that I did not tell my mother I loved her and I was the luckiest daughter in the world. As a matter of fact, as she started to die on April 19th at the age of 95, uh, that's a whole saga which is in the book, uh, she was going, she was being driven home from Danielle, a restaurant, Danielle, we were at a cousin's wedding. And I said, mommy, I'm the luckiest person in the world because you're the best mommy in the world. She goes, I know I'm the best mother in the world and you love me and you're a lucky daughter. And would you please let me shut the door? I've got a big day tomorrow. (laughs) And that big day tomorrow ended up in the hospital instead of celebrating her 95th birthday. But she became a medical experiment under the great aegis of Columbia Presbyterian Hospital and uh, the great uh, Dr. Martin Leon and Alan Schwartz and that whole team. And they not only saved her life, she made medical history and would live for another eight plus years. 
till over 103. I liked her Lilyism when her friend died. I think when Lily was already in her hundreds and she was so upset and she wailed and then she waits a second and then she says, what's for dinner? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I said, mommy, I some bad news. Gladys Loeb died. Gladys Loeb. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> what's for lunch? I said, what's for lunch? She said, yeah, I've got about 10 seconds to mourn. I'd like a tuna on rye. And then she went to see Miss Saigon. She went to see Miss Saigon. And after the show, she said, oh, there's in the point of theater. Not to have the helicopter. It's just great. <laughs> I just thought those were so much fun, including those really definitely was another great addition to the book because I laughed out loud at almost every single one of them. Well, I want you to laugh out loud. You know, when, when we do a concert, I put all the comedy uh, quite up front. So the audience laughs because if the audience laughs, the, the diaphragm moves. And once the diaphragm is moving, it can laugh or what? Or it can cry because it's... it's, it's um, it's available. And then you save usually some of the more dramatic moments toward the 11 o'clock number. Either that, or you better hit it out of the park at the opening with some kind of sad song. I, it's not my thing. I don't do that. I try to uplift people. And then we see where we, we see where we go from there. Once you've got them in the palm of your artistic hand, then you start layering in the more poignant or difficult moments of a person's life or a person's story. I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on Broadway being closed for so long and what it's going to be like when it reopens, because I'm a huge Broadway junkie. We go up several times a year, see four or five shows each time we go, and I just love it. And that, for me, has actually been one of the hardest parts of the pandemic, is having Broadway closed. And I'm sure my feelings on that are very minor compared to the people who actually work in the theater, and you know that is their livelihood. But what do you think that's going to be like when it reopens? Well, I just think... Uh, just using common sense, which I know that Lily would use as well. Our health is our wealth. That's the most important thing. If you don't have your health and you spend your whole life trying to get it back. When mother was in the hospital before she had this medical experiment, she would say things like, when am I going to get back to my life? Get me out of here. I want to get back to my life. Sitting in this light green room watching television that I can barely hear. So that's, that's the crucial thing. Uh, happiness is a choice. And I say gratitude is the quickest way to, to happiness. And I would say we will get back to Broadway with a hundred people in the house where nobody can still make a living, but we want to open the house up. I'm about to do a play in Bay Street in June, uh, doing a one-woman show called Becoming Dr. Ruth. Well, I'll be playing Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and it's such a thrill for me because I get to be around Dr. Ruth, who's a friend of mine, and she's so optimistic. She is so optimistic that all of her sentences end in an upswing up there. It goes, hello, how are you? It's good. It's Dr. Ruth Westheimer. I would say, of course, we miss the stage. But what is the alternative? And if the alternative is COVID, I can tell you, I had it. This is something you do not want to contract. So all of you out there who are reluctant to get your vaccinations, I want to just tell you how selfish you are being, just to be clear, just to be really clear about that, that you could be a walking infection to your countrymen, to your immediate family, and, uh, and to the people with whom you work. So that's the first thing, getting herd immunity. The second thing, I don't know if Bay Street is making everyone show their cards. You know, we have cards here in New York for double vaccinations where it's marked right. down. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I really am all for that being an, a, a way to enter an arena where there are other people. But 
there has to be socially distanced seating. And the unions are very strict because the unions don't want to be sued. The unions don't want to take a chance. And we are allowed 100 people in a theater, I believe, of 300 people. Maybe it's 400. But there has to be at least two seats. And then if you're with your husband, you can sit right next to your husband and then have two seats for the next person. Maybe that's how they get get it to work. I look forward to the theater opening when we all feel safe and nobody gets to contract a disease that could possibly, not probably anymore, but that could possibly kill you. And uh, that's, that's, that's how I feel. What do they say? Happiness is not getting what you want. It's wanting what you get. And uh, this is what we got. This is what we got at the moment. I would say to my fellow actors whom I love, do whatever you can to do alternatives. I'm doing a virtual concert for which I'm being paid uh, for Chicago. I've just done one for San Diego. You have to get your wallet out and go into a great nightclub and hire a camera team and, you know, use part of your fee to foot that bill and film a concert and send it in. On the other hand, I have some of those numbers for the rest of my life. So if you needed a song, I could give it to you, you know, and say, here, here's a representation of my work. Uh, the other thing is we've been doing readings, virtual readings. Nothing substitutes for the, the face-to-face. But until we can get it, we might as well stay well. That idea, the impatience to get out of bed, whether you have a common cold or whether you have a life-threatening disease is, is a human nature. But... Uh, but you have to exercise discipline. And if you feel lousy, get on your bike or go running or do speed walking so the endorphins can course through your body and enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. I do think we're on the cusp of things beginning to return to whatever the normal is going to now look like. People can attend baseball games. You are going to be doing a show even with a smaller crowd. At least you're getting back to that. And I do think as people get vaccinated, that helps a lot. And I am definitely all for having to show your card and, you know, being comfortable that everyone around you is also vaccinated. If we ever get to a proper herd immunity and all of you who have not had your vaccinations, I am making a judgment about you. (laughs) Listen, people in Japan are flying to California to try to get vaccinated because there are no vaccinations there. There are other people who are really in bad shape. So we need to get well. We're the United States. We have a great precedent, and that is not a political statement. That is a statement about the human nature of this particular human being in the White House at this moment. This guy, as we say on my side of the block, is a major mensch because he thinks of the other person before he thinks of himself. He feels that's the core of his job, and I bet you Abraham Lincoln thought that way too. That's that's it. Yes, they're, they're opening slowly and eventually we'll be back in the game. And when we are, there's going to be an explosion of projects that you wouldn't believe. Also, how wild is it with gender equality, which Ruth Bader Ginsburg so supported and fought for, that in this COVID time, there's been indictment, let us say, of certain individuals who have been cruel and unkind being cruel and unkind, not on an equal field of play, that is the bosses and the employers, is no longer tolerated. And that's really interesting. You know, I have wonderful people who work with me and work for me. And you have to watch your P's and Q's with another person. Be respectful and not pull rank. And if you do, you will be held accountable nowadays. 
it, in my profession, there's been a real upset with two two major forces being three really being sidetracked. Yes, and it's definitely better late than never. It's a shame, you know, as you're saying, it didn't happen long ago, but at least it's happening now. And I think that is one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that everybody slowed down enough to be able to focus on some of these things. Yes, I I agree. And maybe the pendulum is swinging quite far the other way, but it's a long time coming. And the at the moment, these men who have been disgraced, I feel terrible for them. Two of them never did a mean thing to me in my life. I worked for both of them and they were wonderful to me. But clearly that was not the case with other women. And my God, one is in appeal, one is in prison. Another one has been disenfranchised from the Broadway League. And uh, and we also lost uh, for a time uh, Kevin Spacey, who mm-hmm. is a great artist and was a, is just a great artist. And I don't know what happened. I don't know Kevin Spacey well. I just was a deep, deep admirer of his work. We are accountable. There are cameras at the red lights now. If you make if you do a tra- make a traffic violation in California, I can tell you there'll be a picture of your license and you will get a citation because I did. I did. <laughs> You're like, I can personally speak to that. <laughs> That's right. It was the middle of the night. I'd come from the Oscars. I did take a left on Sunset from Beverly Glen. It was a red light. There was nobody there. It was three in the morning. That the picture came back, $300 fine Ooh. from my rental car. Yeah, but I, I broke the law. I, I did the wrong thing. And so people can call this George Orwellian. 1984 is here where you're being watched. But on the other hand, There's a great advantage. We're still a democracy. This is not an autocracy. Thank God. We had a little bit of a brush with that four years ago. We we are accountable. There are a lot of cameras. George Floyd, ladies and gentlemen, George Floyd. Well, and that teenager, you know, you just think, thank goodness she had the presence of mind to get her phone out and go ahead and film. And I do think that is such a game changer, and I hope it will continue to be a game changer. Before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read that you recommend to people. Well, my godfather was a man named Kelly Vollner. He was one of my father and mother's best friends from NYU. He, he, they had a handsome, brilliant son named Ian Vollner, and he brought home a bride named Jill Wine Vollner years ago, and I knew her as a little girl. Jill Wine Vollner and Ian Vollner divorced, and Jill Wine married a man named Banks, and now she's Jill Wine Banks, and she wrote The Watergate Girl. And I just think she told a fantastic story. It was an honor to listen. I listened to the audiobook, which I, I just loved. It was an area that I'm not fluent in, though I was, of course, alive and well for Watergate and remember Jill very, very well. And she was the head attorney for the Army of the United States. She really broke through a lot of plate glass ceilings as a woman. So I would recommend The Watergate Girl. And the other one I loved is uh, Sanjay Gupta's Keep, Keep Sharp. It's a real guide to not keep aging in the most marvelous way. So I loved that book very much. And of course, now, because I'm about to play Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and I'm going out to the North Coast Repertory Com- uh, Company in uh, Solana Beach, and uh, David Ellenstein is going to film me in this play about her. I'm reading Dr. Ruth's relationship road- roadmap. I'm, I'm studying her, and uh, she, of course, any of her books are very useful. Sex for Dummies was her big bestseller. I've been married 44 years, so I didn't need that one. (laughs) But nonetheless, I really enjoyed her her books. They were very fast read. 
And uh, that's it. The other, the other ones I love reading are Jane Fonda's books, you know, about her third act. I thought she's had quite, quite a life. So The Watergate Girl, Keep Sharp, Jane Fonda's books, and of course, anything by Ruth Westheimer. I have one other book, one other sure. book. It's it's a new book. It's a first memoir. It's called Lilyville, Mother, Daughter, oh. <laughs> and Other Roles I've Played by Tova Felchu. <laughs> by the most fabulous woman, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, Tova, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts for a Page podcast. I have completely enjoyed speaking with you, and this was just a dream come true of mine to be able to interview you. It's my pleasure, and please tell all you Houstoners, my darling Texans, I'll be at the, for a virtual event, so you can all tune in, I'll be at the JCC Houston Authors in Conversation event, 7.30 p.m., May the 5th, under the JCC Houston Authors in Conversation, and I'll be in conversation with the wonderful Zibby Owens. Oh, that will be so fun. I'm going to have to try to catch that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tova. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would also really appreciate it if you would quickly fill out the entry for the Quill Podcast Awards. Tova's book can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.